You're listening to Tech Versus Media with Richard Walpert. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest is Casey Wasserman. We're going to learn what it's like to run a company that manages 3,000 athletes worldwide. That's a lot of athletes. 2,000 musicians, some of my favorites. His thoughts on NFTs and where are we with esports? All on today's episode of Tech Versus Media. The following program is brought to you in living color. We have a big show for you tonight. But there's one more little thing. Today, Apple is... You've got mail. You know that sound means it's time for another episode of Tech Versus Media. I'm your host, Richard Wolpert. I've been in tech and media for the last 36 years on both sides of the fence. Apple, Disney, four startups, venture capitalists, and over 100 companies. I've seen both sides. Is it a convergence? Is it a clash? Is it both? My guest today is Casey Wasserman, chairman of the Wasserman Group, which oversees 3,000 athletes worldwide, 2,000 musicians, all names you know, some I'm a fanboy of, including Coldplay, Billie Eilish, and others, chairman of the 2028 Olympic Committee. His company owns digital marketing agencies that are involved in esports. He's on the board of Activision, Blizzard. He's involved in so many philanthropic activities. I don't know how this man does it all. We're going to be diving into all these topics. I think today's episode is going to be educational, not just for you, but for me as well. So now we're going to start, Casey, with something I called Rapid Fire 10. Okay. Is it true that at age 10, you were a torchbearer during the 1984 Summer Olympics? True. Jerry Maguire was inspired by legendary sports agent Lee Steinberg. If someone here at Wasserman spent all night writing a mission statement and put it in everybody's mailbox, would they be fired, promoted, or something else? They'd be celebrated. Pick one, football, baseball, basketball, golf, or boxing. Football, because that way I get two sports, not just one. I get football here and football, as they call it in Europe, so there you go. If you could do anything you wanted tomorrow, how would you spend the day? You know, I actually am a total homebody, so I would actually enjoy spending a day at home without having to worry about doing a whole lot of things that were required of me. Just spending the day at home, working out, vegging out, if you will. With your family. With my family, absolutely. At this stage of your career, are you more passionate about Wasserman, the for-profit business, or your philanthropy? Yeah, they're, look, they're different. they're different passions, right? So Wasserman drives my competitive passion and the foundation drives my passion that we have a responsibility to make the communities we live in better. Is it true or false that in 2002, you know where this is going? No, well. GQ called you the (laughs) Jewish Tom Cruise. That is unfortunately true. Which of your accomplishments are you most proud of in your life? My kids. Which of the most recent additions to Wasserman has been the most fun, personally? Not best business, not strategically, but just fun for you. I think the acquisition of the music business was fun for a whole host of reasons. One, to do it in a world of the pandemic and COVID, where we literally spent 14 months on a deal and never had an in-person meeting. Because more than anything, it was kind of a really different experience in every way. Got it. If you went to the bathroom and I stole your phone and looked at your playlist, which artist are you playing the most right now? I am a terribly boring music listener. It would be you 2 the Beastie Boys, and Bruce Springsteen. If you could have dinner with any three people, alive or not, which three people and why? With my grandfather, because I miss him. Alexander Hamilton, just because he's so in the world right now, and it'd be fascinating to see what the real Alexander Hamilton was like. And I'd want to have dinner with Jackie Robinson. So I sort of understand what you do. 
given what I do, right? But it's still hard for me to wrap my mind around it. How would you describe what Wasserman does? So in the broadest sense, I, I would say that we're a service organization representing really two kinds of clients. One would be talent. And today that is now athletes, roughly 3,000 athletes in 30 sports around the world. As of a couple months ago, that includes artists. That's a couple thousand artists for all of their touring. And then on, on the other sort of group of clients, it would be brands and properties on how they, th- how they think about allocating or attracting brand dollars in cultural opportunities. So not just sports, but very broadly cultural, right? It's how they spend their brand sponsored dollars. So like I know the history of the talent agent business, right? And if we go back to call it 1980, we had CAA, we had William Morris, we had ICM. Those were like the big guys, right? Is it fair to say that you are building the evolution of what they should have built? Well, what's fair to say is that we chose not to be in the entertainment industry. So we don't represent writers, producers, actors, directors, below the line, above the line talent in the traditional entertainment industry, sort of scripted and unscripted TV and and film. So what's fair to say is we intentionally chose to be in the businesses we're in because we think that those are the businesses of the future. And it really comes to a very simple perspective, which we believe what matters in the world is what's live and what matters live is sports and music. And so we've chosen to spend our time and our resources and our efforts to build the most relevant, most fundamentally important business in the areas of sports and music. And and that's something we try and do every day. So just digging in a little bit on live. I mean, you put a very big emphasis on you think live is the future. I know Satya Nadella from Microsoft said last year, mid twenty. What was happening in 2020 was a five to 10 year acceleration of what was already going to happen. Do you agree that we accelerated even the work you're doing with artists, the live event stuff by five to 10 years? No, I I don't believe that that world is going to change a whole lot. I actually think the power of a live performance is without compare. And so Billie Eilish, who we represent now, did a... Okay, I was going to do this later, but I'm a Billie Eilish fanboy. Oh, look at that. So for those... They are. I just pulled out my Billie Eilish necklace. You did. That she wears all the time that I saw on her in the Apple Music documentary. Yep. And I went to her website to try and buy it and it was sold out. So I paid 2X what it was on eBay. I love it. I think I paid 120 and it normally was 59, but okay. I wear it. I love it. Not every day, but for you. I appreciate that. And, and I did buy tickets for Billie Eilish, but they're crappy. You can, you know where I'm going with that. I do. Right? I got you. Don't okay, worry. Right. You can add that to your ticket request. All right. So, all right. Keep going. You know, she did a live stream and it was great and a lot of people watched it. But I don't think there's anybody who, as much as they loved it and enjoyed it, as much as she probably enjoyed it, would tell you that it was better than seeing her in concert. Uh, I will tell you for all the sports we all watch on TV, the second we could go back to arenas and stadiums, people are going back in droves because there's nothing that replaces that experience. And so I think in many ways what the pandemic did was, is it showed what we value and how we like to experience things. So yes. I can now do a deal, a transaction over video conference and phone calls and never be in person. But the business that we do, it still is fundamentally no different than it was when there were gladiators in arenas. People like to go see that stuff real and live and experience it because there is something really special about, you know, live is different, right? You know, and you don't, Billie Eilish doesn't build a career if she's only virtual, if you will, and only on your phone or your computer or your iPad. Because people saw her in small clubs and people saw her in Coachella and and have a presence that they didn't expect. And now all of a sudden she commands a presence and that's because of that live experience and that's not replicatable. 
would you say that what the live performance does, it's, it makes somebody feel closer to the artist? No question. And I think people feel closer to the artists and I think communities matter and the community of fans who share that experience, that's something that we as human beings have an appetite and and a sort of a permanent need for. And I think you want to be with people that love what you love as well. Is that fair? No question. And I think that's, that's community. That's, that's what brings human beings together. And that's, what's powerful about things that are live, right? So let's talk about how technology might help with that. So we're going to talk about VR and AR for a second. And I have an Oculus Quest because I buy everything that's new because I have to. I kind of get it. I don't fully get it, right? I'm 58. There's a couple ideas I've heard in sports and music that were like, this would be VR I would do. So sports, it would be, there are six cameras at the game. One is courtside. One is a little bit up. One is on one side. One is on the other side. And in my VR, I can choose which seat I'm in as if I'm sitting in that chair. And I could say, oh, the game plays over there now. Take me to camera three. I become my own director for the game. Do you see something like that happening or am I just a geek? Look, I think the short version of the answer is yes. For some people, that will be interesting. But I will tell you, I don't think there's a better experience than being a passive viewer that is of a, of a broadcast that is highly produced and professionally produced for viewing. I mean, if we agree that sports brings people together, it still brings people together in your home just as much as it does, obviously not at the scale, in person. Sure. Sitting with something on your head like that is disconnecting from the group as opposed to connecting with the group. So as a complement to the produced experience, I think it's super interesting. Mm -hmm. As a replacement of, I would bet against it. I I completely agree it's not going to replace it, but fortunately I've met Eddie Vedder several times, who's just an amazing person and artist, but he's playing a show in Hawaii tomorrow. So I agree with you on the live, but now using VR, I could see the Hawaii show as well because I'm a fanatic. For me, it would obviously augment the relationship I could have with my artist, even though I'm not there. It gives me the opportunity to sort of be there versus not at all. Is that fair? It does. This is where sports and music diverge, right? Sports, I think, I forget what the exact number is, but something like 97% of NFL fans will never see a game in person. The great majority of people will experience them mostly in their lives on television. That's never actually been the case in music, right? I mean, there have been one-off concert movies, there have been some streaming specials, but for some reason, the music experience isn't produced for television, it's created for live. And so, you know, can it evolve? Can it create an opportunity to engage? But you're not gonna watch, I don't believe fans will watch 30 Pearl Jam concerts on television because in theory, they're the same. Now that's not exactly true, obviously. Depends on the band. but. Every, every sports game is by definition unique and different. And so I think, you know, it's a little bit of each case is different. Each, each medium is different. And by the way, I actually think if you went to a Pearl Jam show and you wanted to relive, you know, one song at one moment in virtual reality, you would do that too. So, you know, again, there's all sorts of opportunities. These are all just more and more interesting ways to keep fans engaged and connected to the things they love. So let's talk about streaming for a second. Well, first of all, I have my own guardrails in life and in business and in investing. And I think they're awesome. You need them, I think. Do you agree? Like in investing, there's certain things I just won't do because I see too many things. And if I don't have the guardrails, I won't stay focused. I won't do anything outside of LA. I won't do hardware. I won't do biotech. Like all those things are easy no's, right? So you have an easy no. Somebody's like, hey, we want you to do this movie. No. Right. But don't you think streaming is gobbling up the TV and movie industry. I mean, 
Certainly, it was accelerated by the pandemic, no doubt, right? Disney Plus launched just before the pandemic. I thought their plan was to have 100 million subscribers in five years. They got there last year. They're releasing every movie, day and date theater, or purchase on Disney Plus. Don't you think streaming is going to continue to disrupt, unfortunately, theaters? What streaming has really done is create a very clear picture of some of the dysfunctional patterns that the movie industry more than the television industry has followed, right? So you make a movie for a lot of money, you release it in theaters, you spend a ton of money in marketing to release it in theaters. Then because of the historical windows to protect entrenched distribution platforms, then you have a different window and you remarket it. Then you go to the home video window and it created a poor economic structure based on historical sort of embedded distribution mechanisms. And so what streaming has done is said, okay, instead of three or four or five million people can see a movie movie opening weekend, now 80 or 100 million people can see a movie opening weekend. Absolutely. And if you're a streaming service, if you know you get that once a month, right, there's a new movie every month, it's a big movie. Or more if you have multiple streaming services. Correct. The revenue per user generated by them becoming a permanent subscriber, the economics get pretty staggering pretty quickly, as we've seen, both both in a real economic terms and in in a multiple and or evaluation environment. I do think what what people will use movie theaters for is in many ways to signify to the customer that this is a big movie and a big event. So if it's in theaters, if it's the new James Bond movie and it's in a theater and it's on a streaming service, great. That means this is a big event. And if I want to go see the theater experience, great. And if I want to pay more to have it in my home, that's great. But that's a big event. And so what streaming has done is, is, is sort of fulfilled the promise of how do you reach as many people as efficiently as possible to make the economics of making movies more interesting and more valuable? Television, again, it used to be when you started a cable channel, the number you had to pay attention to was 8,760. That's the number of hours in a year. Yep. And if you had a cable channel, you had to fill 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the entire year. Well, now that number is essentially infinity. Right. So in a streaming service, it is unlimited opportunity for inventory. And therefore... We all have the list of things we want to watch and none of us can keep up. And I look at Moore's Law and what's happened in technology. But like last night, I was in my office and I was backing something up to a five terabyte hard drive that was this big. And I looked over my shoulder to my own personal computer museum, which has a Lisa, which predated the Mac. Wow. And on top of the Lisa is something called a profile. And it was five megabytes, which was one millionth the size of five terabytes. And I now, for 99 bucks, because I'm a geek and I like it, have gigabit Ethernet to my home, right? A thousand megabits. So Casey, with all these increases in bandwidth, which are just going to continue to get faster and faster, how do you see that impacting your sports business, your music business? What sort of things are going to happen in the future? If you just stick with sports for a second, what surrounds the broadcast and... 10 years ago, 20 years ago, people talked about interactive viewing. But now this is about, if you've got 50 million people in this country who play fantasy sports and they're watching their game, wouldn't it be nice if the fantasy sports was in it? You know, you now have the bandwidth to do those things. Sports gambling, sort of all that happens around it, I think is really powerful. Again, I don't think the core viewing experience of sports is going to change a whole lot, you know? You You would know better than me. The TV's going to get nicer and better. The sound may get better. The camera quality will continue to improve. But having it be produced for you with professional broadcasters and professional pro- is really awesome. It is. And we love that. Yes. So I think what bandwidth will do is how do you surround that experience with other interesting things or how on your phone or your iPad or your computer are you looking at 
okay, I'm watching the produced experience, but you know, I happen to love this guy. He's not in the lead in this golf tournament, but I want to watch him play. So now I can stream him. And by the way, maybe you can stream him from the camera on the caddy's hat, you know, like all that stuff becomes really interesting. But the expectation for bandwidth is insatiable. I look at my kids and, you know, if it's not instantaneous, they complain. Yes. And then I also think, you know, as that connectivity expands beyond the home, you know, that's where I think there's some interesting things. What does it mean to be a, a customer in an arena now? That's very different right now. We still go to an arena and it's hard to post something on Instagram, which is crazy to me. Why do we wait in line for 10 minutes to get a hot dog? Why do we have to stand in line at the merchandise stand? Why can't we just buy it and have it shipped to our house or waiting in our car? They require a great deal of bandwidth and connectivity to deliver. And I think in many ways, the experience outside the home or in the venue will change dramatically because of that, that connectivity and that, the breadth of that bandwidth more than your in-home experience. I don't like hot dogs, but getting back to your hot dog reference, you're saying, why should we wait 10 or 15 minutes in line for the hot dog? But you think technology will solve that problem for people at a stadium? For sure. If you just think about today, you go to a Dodger game. The Los Angeles Dodgers do not know who's in their building, where they bought their ticket, how much they paid for their ticket, and what else they do in their venue. So therefore, when you talk about dynamic pricing, dynamic pricing isn't about day of week or opponent. Dynamic pricing is about consumer habits. If you go to a Dodger game and you only go to one a year, but when you go, you take... 10 people and you buy all your food and everyone gets a jersey. Sure. Your tickets arguably should be free because, because you're a valuable customer. I'm the cheapskate. I take my own peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I go to 80 games a year. You really take a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No, but okay. my, ticket should be full, <laughs> my ticket should be full price. Yeah. If you save up once a year to go to a game because you can't afford to go and you spend 20 minutes in line for food or merch and a game is three hours, you know, it's 15, 10, 15, 20% of your time is wasted. Sure. Technology does make that better. It's yes. all about bandwidth and connectivity and integration. And I think there is a ton of opportunity to be had and both monetarily. And I think the experience can get infinitely better for the customers. Got it. We are going to take a quick break. One of the things we're going to talk about with Casey when we come back is esports. Is now the right time? Is it too early? Is it too late? Where is he? How do his 2,000 athletes fit into esports? All of that when we come back. I often say on my show, I'm having discussions with the people that you know and the people that you should know. The same can be true of a law firm. One law firm you should know about, an LA-based law firm, is Stubbs Alderton Markley's. I've known Scott Alderton for almost 20 years, and I've used his firm for not only my personal work, but for HelloTech and other companies that I've been involved with. They specialize in technology and media, the topics that we discuss in the show. If you're looking for a law firm that will pay attention to you at a reasonable price, please reach out to Stubbs Alderton. You can send Scott an email. It's salderton at stubbsalderton.com. And if you need help spelling that email address, just go to the show notes for today's episode. There'll be a direct link you can click on to email Scott. I highly recommend Stubbs Alderton Markley's. One of my favorite sayings is, don't tell me you love me, show me you love me. And what I mean by that is, you can use words, but I want to see action. Action really shows your intent. And the same is true of venture capital firms. Everybody right now is talking about the importance of supporting women, supporting people of color, supporting immigrants, supporting transgender people. But not a lot of them are actually showing that they do that. 
and one that is extremely focused on this and has been for several years before it became the hot thing in the last two or three, is a firm I'm proud to be affiliated with called A-Crew Capital. It's A-C-R-E-W Capital. Founded by three people, all non-white males, which is extremely rare in venture capital. One of the founders, Teresa Gao, who I think is one of the best VC investors in the country, hands down, is a first-generation American. This firm has the focus and the team and the desire to invest in companies that are founded by women and people of color. Of course, if you're a white male, you're not disqualified. And if you're interested in a firm that cares so much about diversity and shows it, I highly recommend you look at A Crew Capital. Welcome back to my conversation with Casey Wasserman. So let's talk about esports for a little bit. So I have a couple of investments in esports. The Immortals, I assume you're familiar with. Wizard Labs, you might not be. Pro Guides, maybe. What is Wasserman doing regarding sports? And before you answer, Casey, I mean, Twitch basically showed, in my opinion, what can be done with streaming 10 years ago, right? They went straight to watch your favorite gamer play their game 10 years ago. When Amazon bought it for a billion, I thought they were nuts. Now I think it was brilliant. Kind of like when Google bought YouTube. Yeah. And now YouTube is one of their biggest businesses. I heard that in Q4 of this year, the revenue for YouTube is going to match Netflix's revenue, (laughs) but without all of the production costs that Netflix has. So YouTube's a monster business. A couple questions. How is Wasserman getting involved in gaming and esports? Do you see esports players as future clients or do you have any yet? What are your thoughts on the whole space? So in, in full disclosure, I'm also in a board member of Activision Blizzard. So obviously it's a, the biggest video game company in the world. And, and so I have a perspective and we're in the esports business. So I, what I will say will be very general, obviously. Richard, my, my view on esports is probably a little different than others, which is I'm not sure that the creation of traditional league-like structures around intellectual property that is video game is the ultimate manifestation of what esports is. And I can, there's a whole lot of reasons for that from sure. my perspective. Sure. But here's what's undeniable. What's undeniable is the amount of time people spend playing video games. Undeniable. And the amount of time people spend watching people play video games. Yeah. If you've got a lot of people watching, a lot of people watching people play, you talk about 5G, 6G, whatever the technology is where you have multiple billions of devices connected with no latency and 4K streaming... You know, to me, the ultimate manifestation of esports is a much more direct engagement than this artificial league-like structure. So I don't know you, you don't know me, but right. we both play the same game, right? which means we both trust the system we're on. We're both validated. We can play against each other. We can play against each other for money. We can play together against someone else we don't know for money. But when you're all connected and you're all playing the same game and you're all, it's a trusted platform and system, there's lots of money to be made. And I think we're in inning one or two today, not in the ninth inning. And so to me, the biggest question is when you create a league around a piece of intellectual property that's a video game, it's the first time a league structure has been built around a piece of intellectual property, which is in historically not proven to be durable. There's no video game that's 100 years old, and there may never be a game that lasts 25 years, let alone 100 years. Now, do I think it's bad to have these leagues? No, I think it's a really good first step and a really good part of the process. But I ultimately think the end game is very different than it looks like today. So I agree with you. I think we're in inning one or two because I've seen things just take longer than we think to mature. But the thing that blew me away, Casey, and I'm not an esports player because I'm I'm really old, I'm 58, is seeing for two years in a row the Staples Center get sold out in an hour to watch other people on the floor play games. 
Doesn't that sound a little bit more like second inning or third? And I'm not saying that's going away. It still may exist in the ninth inning, but it may be a very small piece of the ecosystem in the ninth inning as opposed to the ultimate manifestation of the ecosystem as it is today. So let's talk about NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens. Not a very descriptive, sexy name, right? Uh -uh. But NBA Top Shop is doing amazingly well with people buying the digital rights to a LeBron James play where he had an amazing slam dunk. I think to myself, well, somebody else owns it, but I can still see it on YouTube. So what does their ownership get them? I understood a little bit more in the art world, if it's digital art. NFTs, a fad that's going to go away, something's there, but it needs to evolve. What are your thoughts on that space? So I completely agree with you on things like LeBron James highlights, because first of all, if I'm the NBA, I own that highlight. If I'm ESPN, I say I paid for the right to show that highlight. YouTube is clearly showing it for free. And if I'm LeBron James, I'm like, well, shouldn't I get a piece of the transaction if that's my dunk? So I think we are, this is inning zero on NFT stuff. So a couple things. If what we're saying by NFT is blockchain-based ownership of intellectual property, so you have a clear chain of title, yeah, that is going to be very relevant and important in the future. And is for cryptocurrencies today. Correct. The problem is today, these things that people are buying they're paying with normal currency. Some are using crypto. But the great majority are yes. normal currency, which yes. means the enforcement of its ownership is in court. So it's the exploitation, the ownership, the argument about it is no different with an NFT than anything else you buy. Sure. If it were on blockchain today and only on blockchain? I think that would be a very different conversation. Okay. So there's clearly a mad rush to do stuff. We, like everybody else, are experimenting. Sure. I think all of it is today really just experimenting. Agreed. I think you need to look at when people are selling things for big numbers, don't look at the number that's being paid. Look at who the buyer is and what they're buying with. So if someone's buying something for $60 million, but they did it with cryptocurrency that they bought for $100, right. that's not a real buyer. So again, this is early days. There's lots of experimenting. I do think the value and the relevance and the importance of blockchain-based ownership of things is going to become more and more important. But most of the NFT stuff today is not is not that. And therefore, there's going to be lots of mistakes, lots of things that turned out to be not what people thought they were, not as valuable as they thought they were when they paid for them. Agreed. And I think you'll, you'll see a correction in whatever, and not necessarily an economic correction, a structural correction in the way it operates, I think, over the next few years. Got it. So... We talked about how I try and keep my finger on the pulse. My daughter, Skylar, teaches me what's new on TikTok, how to do an Instagram story. That keeps me young. You bought an agency called Laundry Service mm -hmm. in 2014, I think it was, mm -hmm. which was all about social media enforcers. I'm in this space. I, in 2014, didn't quite get how big that was going to be today in 2021. How did you or your team, how do you keep a pulse on this stuff? And then say, this is important enough that we're actually going to buy this thing because we think this is important to our artists and brands in the future. For me, I think having the ability to have both time and space mentally to have some perspective is important. I think knowing that our business is about what's tomorrow, not what was yesterday, and having the openness and vulnerability to say, hey, look, we used to be in this business. We don't need to be in this business anymore. Look, you cannot fight cycles, right? If the world is shifting from one medium to another or one paradigm to another, that's going to happen. Sure. My job is to understand it's happening <laughs> and to adjust the business I'm operating. So to reallocate resources, to divest, to invest, whatever it is, 
and be willing to say, this was a mistake. We're admitting it now. We're going to fix it by doing this. Correct. Or not even a mistake. This was right then, but it's not right now. So the, the job of a CEO is to recognize those patterns and make sure your company doesn't go off the backside of that pendulum right. or that curve before you can allocate and reallocate capital to the next curve. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about the world we're in and the business and the clients we serve and what's important to them. There are lots of people here who are better at their jobs than I am. So they do their job, which is the day-to-day taking care of the clients, which is the core responsibility of our business that allows us to have success and opportunity. And my job is to actually take a step back and to try and have that perspective with a leadership team who's encouraged to think differently, to admit we have opportunities or challenges, whatever they are. And by the way, this ties directly in to my perspective on diversity, which is sure. Diversity is not about quotas or checking boxes. If everyone thinks the same, then we're not serving our clients and we're not serving ourselves. The only way to have people think differently is to have people from diverse backgrounds in every perspective, geography, race, religion, because it's the diversity of inputs that produces the better output. Got it. So you've done a lot of deals. I am a music fan. So just this year, you acquired the North American assets of Paradigm Music. A few artists I've heard of, Ed Sheeran, Dave Matthews Band, Casey Musgrave, Fish, Lord, Coldplay. But you also just brought on Brett Smith from WME. And my understanding is he brings people that are more my speed. In addition to Billie Eilish, Snoop Dogg, John Legend. And were you in music at all before? And this was uh, Accenture or was this a launching pad? So we weren't in the talent business in any regard on the music side at all. So this was a complete launching pad, as you would say, into the music space. We had been engaged with conversations with Paradigm for a long time pre-pandemic because we had some history and relationship and because our business was relatively stable. We were able to engage in dialogue with Paradigm and their, their ownership. And it took 14 months. We were buying a business with 50 music agents and 130 employees. And so it, it required us to really buy a business, restructure the business, make sure we were starting the right way with the right leadership, with the right people so that we could give that business the support, both operationally and financially, that it needed to take advantage of what we thought was a very interesting opportunity. And it took 14 months. And through that process, it also helped us get to know the leadership team of the of the music business we were buying incredibly well. So day one did not feel like day one, because it. it was, we had... You been, were starting with something good. And we had been through ups and downs together. I mean, 14 months of a deal, there's sure. lots of, you could imagine, ups and downs in that process. And being able to, to go through those ups and downs together and come through that, with a better structure, a better relationship, a deeper understanding of each other is is what gives us a really exciting and optimistic future ahead together. I get it. I I wrote a book, I know, you know, called The Soul of a Deal. And it was all about relationships with the other side. And there were times where we didn't talk for two months. So it's it's just good for people to hear that. So Casey, your grandfather, Lou Wasserman's come up a couple times today and obviously had a tremendous impact on the entertainment industry. A lot of people know about that, but he also had tremendous impact on you. Essentially, he was your father from a young age, taking you to breakfast at famous Nate Niles Deli in Beverly Hills almost every weekend, and also teaching you about the importance of philanthropy. So, so tell me about the impact that Lou had on your life. So the industry, you know, look, he started working in MCA in 1936 moved to Los Angeles to run a C-minus talent agency that MCA owned in 1939. Ten years later, it was the biggest talent agency in the world. And, you know, MCA was one of the first, MCA Universal was one of the first true media conglomerates, theme parks, TVs, movies, book publishing. And so 
He created the package deal. He had the first television production company. There's much of the industry that exists today that was a lot of his foresight and, and doing. And its impact on you and philanthropy. My mom is his only child. I grew up without a dad my whole life. Who wasn't your grandfather, your surrogate And father? my grandfather, I always tell people the most incredible thing he did when he had no idea who I was or what kind of person I would be because I was three years old, made the very conscious decision to be that father to me and did not waver for one day for his entire life. He would leave his office and come to my Little League games and tennis matches. We did go to breakfast every Saturday and Sunday that he was in town from the time I was three until a month before he died. And everybody who says, I knew your father, he was incredible, is talking about my grandfather because that's what he was to me. And I would tell you, I'm not sure I would be half of what I am today without that influence on my life, having nothing to do with anything that's economic or, or material. You know, in many ways, he saved my life as a, as a human being. And philanthropy, just quickly. So he was very clear that he grew up incredibly poor. He always used to joke that the Depression didn't actually change his life because he was poor, <laughs> dirt poor before the Depression and dirt poor during and after the Depression. But that the systems and the structures in this country are what allowed him to create success. And did giving back is both a responsibility and obligation as individuals and as a family. And you have continued that. And, and I have continued that. In a that. very generous way. And, and he, would, he did tell me and would tell you today that for all the business success he had that exists still today, his greatest legacy was, was his philanthropy. And the most important thing he did was his philanthropy. And so, you know, I carry that on today through the foundation that he and my grandmother established. We give to many of the same things they gave to. We give to different things because obviously it's a different world. Sure. And I'm a steward of the foundation and, and hopefully, you know, my kids and their kids will, will continue it long after I'm gone. What in your career has been your biggest regret? My, my lack of understanding that, that how ego and insecurity can drive you to do things you shouldn't do. I would say kind of 2006, seven, eight, the desire of your ego, the insecurity that exists in all of us made us get distracted and do things we shouldn't have been doing. And I think focus and simplicity is highly underrated. Mm. You know, being true to yourself and not letting sort of ego and insecurity drive you to do things is a really powerful lesson. And I wish I had probably learned that. So you were very in my opinion, brave right now, mentioning that even you have insecurity. You know the tragedy in my life, right? We lost our daughter, Grayson, yep. just shy of age of 16, uh, to suicide. I'm not embarrassed to say. She had true mental health disease. We say now we lost her to mental health disease. Like somebody would say you lost somebody to cancer or an accident. Simone Biles bows out, citing mental health. And there's all this chatter. Was that courageous? Or did she get all the benefits of what you get before you go to the Olympics? And she referenced the other tennis Olympian who's mentioned her own struggles with mental health. I think it allows or would have allowed people like my daughter to say, oh my God, these people are like me. I can talk about this. It's not a stigma. I think we may look back at it as truly an inflection point in the in the mental health discussion. And you That's have, my hope. And you and I have talked about it. You know, I have a son who has struggled mightily with uh, anxiety and depression and, and had a really rough go of it. He's 18 now. And it's a real disease. It is a real thing. And he's fortunate today that he's worked hard and gotten through a lot of it. And I couldn't be more proud of him for the young man he's become. But mental health is a real issue. The stigma around it is real. And that all comes back to ego and people being unwilling to be vulnerable. And the truth is the most powerful thing we can all do, the strongest thing we can all do is be vulnerable because that is actually the hardest thing to do. It is. Being macho and tough and covering up, that's easy. 
Yes. What I tell people is speak your truth, even if it makes other people uncomfortable. Yeah. And, you know, I'm happy to admit to you that I have real anxiety and all that stuff is real. It is. I do too. It's systemic. And when you tell people, hey, I'm anxious about this. This makes me anxious. I'm not comfortable. It's not about letting that rule your life, of course, but it's about being aware and communicative and open. And the more you are aware and communicative and open and understanding why, why the more you can work through it and manage it and the less it becomes a barrier. And so Simone Biles, there's no way at the Olympics in London, two Olympics prior in 2012, she would have done that. And we're still, again, not to overuse baseball analogies in our hour, but we're still so early. I mean, But I hope this is an inflection. I look back on gender issues, and I think the Caitlyn Jenner was transformative Mm -hmm. for people that had gender issues. I am hoping this moment with Simone is like that for people with mental health issues. It's one of the things I hope we can all understand, which is, you know, understanding what mental health is and isn't and making sure we're helping people who have mental health issues in the way that they need to be helped and understanding awareness, compassion and, and vulnerability is incredibly powerful. And the old thing of athletes aren't role models. Well, in this way, they are role models because them standing up and saying, I have a hard time getting out of bed sometimes too, is an incredibly powerful thing for our kids to hear and and the world to hear. Thank you for sharing that. So my last question always, you know, it's called Tech versus Media Convergence Clash. Which do you think it is and why? Well, in the world I operate in, it's convergence. Sports has either been completely defensive to or the beneficiary of every technological shift that's ever happened. And I don't believe the shifts we're seeing now will be any different for sports. Great. Thank you, Casey. I've known Casey for almost 30 years, and I still learned a lot today. Here are my final thoughts. So Casey thinks we're an inning zero of NFTs. I I agree. I think why he said that is, and I have a saying, if you're right, but you're too early, you're actually wrong. It's happened to me a couple times in my career. Too early would be pre-inning zero, meaning the game's not even being figured out yet. Inning zero means it's early. Now's a good time to get in. But in my opinion, some of the stuff you're seeing is not going to last. For example, owning a digital right to a piece of a physical piece of art I see that happening. I don't see that sustaining. Owning a digital right to a digital asset that's on the blockchain, that is going to be huge. Regarding streaming, we all think we have a lot of streaming. We've all gotten streaming overload with all the streaming services we have. Casey still feels like it's in inning three. I think part of the reason for that is it's a confused, fucked up mess right now. You've got seven services. You don't know what's on what. You don't know what movies on which streaming services. You don't know what episode you watched where. It's all got to get fixed. That's partly why I think he said that. Regarding philanthropy, his grandfather, Lou, started that a long time ago. Casey has continued his legacy. I see it often in Calabasas near me is the Wasserman campus for people that were in the film industry as a place to go in the later parts of their lives. And look at what he's done just with that campus. One of our friends actually works that are helping the elderly. The impact that I see and I drive by and it says Wasserman is tremendous. If you enjoyed today's episode, and I sure hope you did, please subscribe. Even better, take two or three minutes and write a review and talk about why you liked today's episode. The episode is produced and edited by Kirk Co. Media. AJ Mosley is my producer. I'm Richard Wolpert. Thanks for listening. <laughs>